What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Disc Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all love and support, and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform, and make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Disc Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. This is Deep Dish, right? Yeah, well, let's get deep. So, so I'm, I'm going deep on both sides. Charlene, welcome to the platform. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank Good. you for being here. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and go through this so people understand your, your impact in footwork um, just in the community. Okay. All right. Community organizer, wife, mother, Tennessee of the year, 2020, um, co-founder and executive director of the Equity Alliance, uh, leader. Um, and it's a whole bunch of more stuff uh, that I can go down that, you know, it'll take an hour for us to get through that. Um, but most importantly, right now, uh, you are a candidate for Tennessee State Senate District 19. Yeah. And so um, how's that going so far? It's going excellent. Okay. Uh, I could not have asked for a better start to my campaign. You know, it's a 90-day campaign and, you know, the challenges are there to ramp up. But um, the energy is there uh, for people to support me. I, I'm getting a lot of great support. So I want to go ahead and dig straight into this. All right. Um, long time um, seat holder of District 19 for the Senate, Senator Brenda Gilmore, um, announced her retirement in a very pe peculiar way. Mm -hmm. um, some would say, you know, she pretty much wanted to handpick a successor. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that kind of backfired, you know, because they put in this act, um, just in case of someone tried to do that, um, the anti, um, well, I'm missing the word, uh, uh Skullduggery Act. Anti-Skullduggery Act, right? Anti-Skullduggery Act, which is when an incumbent, uh, tries to, well retires after the deadline, and then somebody else, you know, it's only one um, person that has put in a petition to run. It says, "Oh, we got to open up the petitions again." Well, yeah, I can explain it a little bit. So, you know, on I think it was April fifteenth. It was the Thursday. Uh, no, April fourteenth, I believe. And you know, everyone in Nashville learned of the news at the same time, and so everyone learned the word anti-skullduggery <laughs> that, that, that day. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it was a law that was passed, I believe, back in 1992. Um, someone had the foresight to pass this law because it essentially prevents incumbents from picking their successors. Right. Um, and, you know, this is a democracy. Right. We are in a uh, representative democracy in America, and we have elections that we deserve as the people to decide who picks and represents us. And right. so um, the Anti-Skullduggery Act prevents us from picking kingmakers, right. <laughs> you know. So. And so what was your initial thoughts when um, <clears throat> Senator Gilmore announced her retirement um, in, the, in the fashion in which she did? And were you thinking before that even happened of running or did you see that as an opportunity? Prior to that day, no, I was not thinking of running for any seat at all. Um, I never thought that elected office or even, you know, running for office was on my bucket list. It was mm -hmm. never a goal. Um, but also, you know, 
starting the Equity Alliance was sort of a, an anomaly for me in my life. So I've just always seen the work that I've been doing as God ordering my steps. And when I learned about the news, I was shocked, just like everyone else in the political world. No mm -hmm. one knew. Right. And um, I immediately started calling my friends that I knew that worked in politics, and everyone was shocked. And I immediately went into organizer mode. Right. <laughs> I said, well, this seat is open now. Who's going to fill it? Right. Um, and then the same day, we also knew who she was going to pick as her um, successor. And I just felt like, you know, this is a way that we should not do politics. Mm -hmm. um, I actually entered the realm of politics because I was sick and tired of politics as usual in the way that we only let certain people in. Right. Um, we treat politics in our political system as an elitist uh, society that only the few get to be a part of. And I've been building power so that everyday people actually gets to be a part of the process. Right. So that actually went against my value system. Mm. Um, and so that is why I felt so passionately about running, because I am standing up for everyday people that have been overlooked, that have been excluded in our society. society. That includes me. Right. Um, if you know my story, if you know the lived experiences that I've been to, been through, there are people in our society that get stigmatized, um, that get labeled based on the condition or the mistake that they've made. And we get to, we tend to ostracize them to the margins mm -hmm. and say, you're not worthy enough to have a voice. You're not worthy enough to have a vote. And I've been building power with these people, returning citizens, working class people, poor folks, you know, vulnerable citizens. Mm -hmm. And that includes me. Right. And I want people to have a voice. And um, that's why I decided to run is because the rest of us right. get to have a say. That's why I say my campaign is based on hashtag it's our time. Right. It's not Charlene's time. It's not my time. It's our time. The voices that have been locked out for so long get to have a voice in the state senate now. And so <clears throat> it may be some of us that's watching or listening who's not familiar with your story. I do know um, you are uh, from originally from Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. yep, yep. Right? Shout out to Little Rock. Little Rock. Um, <laughs> made your way down to Nashville by way of Vanderbilt University. Yep. Um, have a whole family history, ancestry of like just like serving, lead, service, serving leadership, civic service, yeah. veteran. And mm -hmm. so I did my research. I did my research. Okay. Um, and you also had to overcome some things um, right. that you mentioned, poverty, um, mm -hmm. um, depression, sexual assault, mm -hmm. you know, and those things. And so can you give us a little bit of insight of how all of those things shaped and molded you um, to, the, to, the, to the woman you are today? Oh, gosh, where do I start? Yeah, so grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, you know, at the time, my parents were married. I got My parents got divorced when I was seven and, you know, grew up in a very Christian home, working class home. You know, people used to describe us like the Huxtables, right, the, on the Cosby show. Uh, I even looked like Rudy <laughs> growing up with the long <laughs> hair. Um, but then my world changed. Um, and so I experienced, um, there's a term for it today, they call ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. Mm -hmm. um, there was domestic violence in my home, um, raised in a single parent home by my mother. She had to go back to work. 
And so I just started experiencing all these things and, um, you know, but I had good values. I had a good centering. My, my parents stressed education. My dad anointed me when he was, when I was younger, about 10 years old, he anointed my head with oil <clears throat> and put me on this path of, of greatness. And so, um, but I also watched my parents, even though we didn't have much, right. we were spiritually rich mm-hmm. in a sense. And, um, my mom didn't let us know we were poor. You know, she right. grinded. She went to school at night. Um, I wa- she was my first example of excellence. Mm. You know, um, she was a fighter. Again, she dealt with domestic violence in um, some relationships. And I had to witness that. Um, mm. When I say I'm a fighter, literally I'm a fighter. I grew up a tomboy. <laughs> so oh, okay. a lot of people don't know this about me. Uh, I was a tomboy. Like, I didn't own a, a pair of clothing that was feminine until I got to college. And so I was like, like that, did you have like other siblings, like brothers that like, no, or? I grew up in a house of women. It was okay. me, my two older sisters. Um, my oldest is 10 years older than me. And then my middle child, uh, sister, Erin, she's two and a half years older than me. But I also grew up with foster children in my oh, home. Okay. So when my parents got divorced, my mom took in um, foster children as a way to supplement her income. Wow. So, she, but she was gone a lot because right. she was going to school at night, going to Philander Smith College in Little Rock, HBCU. And <clears throat> I was the one at home, either watching the, the foster children with me, making ramen noodles for dinner. Right. Um, and so I saw a lot of trauma that they brought to the home as mm-hmm. well with them. And that impacted me and influenced mm-hmm. me as well. Um, I forgot where I was going with this story, but... <clears throat> How did all that shape you? And yeah, yeah. there was. So when I was in third grade, I, t- I go back to the fighter store because I literally used to fight. <laughs> I was. I used. She's to, a fighter. Like if you talked about my mama, I, we was fighting. I fought all the. I played with all the boys in the neighborhood, uh-huh. and there was this little boy named Chaim that lived across the street, and he talked about my mama. And uh, we got into a fight, and I was on top of him, just wailing on him, right? <laughs> and so I fought all the boys in the neighborhood. Um, I didn't have any, a lot of female friends. When I was in third grade, I had this friend. Her name was Rhonda Lovelace. And Rhonda was dark-skinned. She was kind of short, um, you know, a little bit heavy-set, you know, heavy-set. Um, and she was being picked on on the playground one day by these this to this girl in fourth grade, and we mm-hmm. was in third grade, and she, these two girls went up to her and was like, you know, wanted to fight her and started picking on her and pushing on her, and I stepped in the way, and I said, if you're going to pick on somebody, pick on me, because that's my friend. <laughs> right. And looking back, that told me, one, I'm super loyal. I'm a super loyal person to my friends, but also, I don't... Let the little guy get picked on, mm-hmm. and I fought like we literally got in the fight on the playground mm-hmm. that day. Um, so that was one instance. The other instance that really taught me at an early age that I was a fighter is um, this boyfriend that my mother had that used to hit on her, mm-hmm. and he came to the house one day. We had they had just had an altercation a few days earlier, where he punched my mother and had a huge gash on her on her forehead, mm-hmm. and um, 
he left the house that day. The police came and um, don't remember if my mom pressed charges or not, but he tried to come back to the house. Obviously, my mom, you know, kicked him out at that point. And he was banging on the door mm. to get in. Um, we had a screen door, so I could see him on the other side, but he couldn't physically get into the house. And there was a lot going on. My sisters, it was just kind of chaos because we were on heightened alert because he was trying to get in the house. And right. I just remember going to the kitchen. I'm nine years old, and I went and grabbed a knife, a steak knife from the... I don't know what I thought I was going to do with that knife, but clearly... I was going to protect my mama. Right, you was prepared to do whatever I was took. prepared to do what I had to do. I could have right. killed that man. Right. And so even at a young age, I've always been a fighter. I have always not been afraid to stand up to the the giant. Who, the bullies. The bully, right? Yeah. Um, and to protect the vulnerable. And so that's who I am at my core is, is a fighter. Right. Um, I don't back down from a fight. You start something, I'm going to finish it. Mm. Um, but going back to just... Some other things that I experienced in my childhood, you know, um, I was suffering from depression when I was a teenager. Uh, I was a really good kid in school in terms of making all A's, right? right. I was I almost felt like I lived this double life. Um, I was great in school. I was, you know, president of the student council. I was in everything. I was captain of the basketball team, volleyball team, softball team. Um, I made straight A's. You was a baller for real, huh? Yeah, I was okay. a baller. I was. Okay. Um, I made <clears throat> all state. You know, I, oh, was, wow. I was a letter. I lettered in Arkansas. I was a letterman. Uh, I got championship rings to prove it. Okay, I have a right. World Series championship <laughs> ring. I, I played softball my entire childhood. That was my outlet from what was going on at home. All right. And um, you know, uh, I started getting. Involved in boys at an early age, um, engaging in risky sexual behaviors, and that impacted me. Uh, I was in some abusive relationships. My high school sweetheart, you know, talked to me um, very verbally abusively mm -hmm. and told me I was stupid. He told me I wasn't worth anything, and I started to believe this. And when I look around, I didn't have a lot of support, and um, it just sent me on this spiral of a dark place, it, a very dark place in my life um, in high school, so much so that I've blocked a lot of my high school year memories out um, because it's just a, a dark place in my life that I wanted to commit suicide. Mm. Um, I even thought about ways of doing it, um, but my Christianity, my faith in, in God, and my belief that you want, if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. Right. And that's the only thing that kept me alive. Mm. Um, and I just remember crying in my bedroom, um, crying to God. And I remember the voice saying, if no one else loves you, I love you. And God kept me alive. Wow. And, um, you know, I had my fair share of horrible relationships. Um, when I was 17, I... Uh, got involved with the older man. Uh, he took advantage of me. Mm. Uh, essentially, he was a pedophile. Right. I had an R. Kelly in my life, as they as uh, <laughs> the story of R. Kelly goes. Right. And um, I, you know, was manipulated. I was deceived. Um, he stopped me. He, he um, you know, engaged in things that I was not maturely ready for, and um, uh, had to make a difficult choice with my body. And so that's why I'm really, really passionate about um, women's reproductive rights, right. um, our ability to choose. Right. So, 
You know, I, I've had my fair share of issues and I've lived these things. Yeah. I know what it's like to be discriminated against in the patient room um, because of the stigma that comes with um, having certain health conditions. I know what it's like to not have health insurance right. um, and to go um, with issues and being uninsured. Um, having to work my way through college on work study, mm. food stamps, and 10 care. Mm. Uh, I went to Vanderbilt, but I worked my way through Vanderbilt. Right. And so I know what that's like. So we need people who can speak to the issues, who understand them, who have lived them, right. who who understands how policy plays out in real time, right. what the unintended consequences are. And that's why I believe I'm best qualified for the seat. How has the Equity Alliance um, journey, experience, work uh, prepared you um, to be the best person for District 19 um, at this particular time? Yeah, when I look at my trajectory of my career, you know, a lot of people just think I woke up some one day and just wanted to start the Equity Alliance and I got lucky. <laughs> now we <laughs> right? Jim Cooper, we like right. we you I got, know, yeah, we you know, yeah. I've got over 20 years in the game mm-hmm. in the community. Um I fell in love with nonprofit work at Vanderbilt. My second semester senior year, I had to do an internship at Bethlehem Centers of Nashville where I met Joyce Searcy, okay. who was my mentor to the day. She to this day, she is a staple in yeah. the community. BC, right? And um, I saw a staff, black staff, who had a passion for the elderly, um, you know, children, and I wanted that too. Mm-hmm. And so I changed my whole career trajectory to go into the nonprofit field. So I've been my whole entire career working in nonprofit and in government. My first job out of college was working for the Tennessee Department of Human Services as a caseworker. And this was in 2005. Um, I served Hurricane Katrina victims or evacuees. I was put on a task force for everyone that was coming from New Orleans with the the clothes on their back. And I was put on a team of five people. Everyone who walked through those doors, I served them. And they were so grateful Mm -hmm. for just having a little bit of money and a little bit of food stamps to get them started in Nashville. Um, And so I've seen people always either in crisis or struggling, right? Um, Low-income citizens um, that I've served, giving them Families First, food stamps, uh, which is what we call SNAP benefits, and Medicaid, Tink Care. Um, And then right from there, I went straight back to graduate school to get my public administration degree, master's degree from University of Tennessee in Knoxville. While I was in Knoxville, I served at the Tennessee Department, I'm sorry, the Tennessee Community Services Agency to enroll pregnant mothers and children into cover kids mm. which is governor bredesen's um health program for right. pregnant women and mothers pregnant mothers and women and children and so i crisscrossed east east tennessee going into rural counties enrolling people into health care mm. um, i also worked for uh, the amachi knoxville program this program was federally funded and I was the director at the age of 25. I turned this program around. It was on the verge of losing its funding. Mm. And we worked with children whose parents are incarcerated in state or federal prison in Tennessee. And I was able to triple our operating budget and um, meet our program girls for the first time in in history because of my leadership at the age of 25, right? Right. Um, And so I've worked in that population. I've worked for Congressman Jim Cooper, mm-hmm. serving under him in three years. And I've also worked for Meharry uh, as a Meharian, uh, serving in the Center for Health Policy. 
I've worked for the Williamson County Chamber of Commerce, which is sort of the catalyst to me starting the Equity Alliance. So when you look over the trajectory of my career, You've, you've done, you've, you've dabbled. I have, <laughs> I have worked with so many different vulnerable populations, right. but I have also worked at the policy level, right. the systems level to make right. the change. I have worked under our most popular, most democratically elected congressman, the person who has gotten the most votes in Tennessee in history. Right. I've served under him, right? Um, and I have served in the most, the fastest growing county in the state, Williamson County in Franklin, Tennessee. I've served there. I saw how the growth of Nashville has happened mm -hmm. as the it city. And so I've had all of these career experiences combined with life experiences right. that have ordered my steps right. to the point of starting the Equity Alliance. And I can go into that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Because I think people can easily, we kind of talked about this, like just Google like the Equity Alliance and like get a snapshot, right, of like yeah. all the things you all do on a state level, right, mm -hmm. and just not like just here in Nashville. Yeah. Make that clear. They work on a state level. Um, we do. <laughs> which, I th which is a big deal. Like yeah. I think it, which is a huge deal um, when it comes to organizing and doing grassroots work and policy work right. at that as well. And so... Um, you ain't gotta give us the full story because I know that's the whole story, and I, I don't want us. I want us to get into some some other deeper things, yeah. but like give give us the meat and potatoes of like your your handprint uh, on some of the things that people may not be aware of uh, with the Equity Alliance and the impact of your your presence, your leadership mm -hmm, has had mm -hmm. uh, on those things. Yeah, you got to go back to the year 2012 um, and where I started my healing journey. Um, I like to say that the Equity Alliance story is so much wrapped up into my personal story of being a survivor. And at the time, I was looking for healing and I was looking to overcome to be the victor mm -hmm. and no longer the victim. Mm. And um, 2012, my son was born. Um, my second child, he's now 10, Elijah. He was born two days before Trayvon Martin was murdered. And the reality of Trayvon's Martin, Trayvon Martin's murder struck me in a way as a mother. Mm -hmm. um, I now had to raise a son who could be looked at as a threat in right. our society. And I was looking for answers. I was looking for how do we get to the root causes of mm -hmm. that. And so the Equity Alliance, one, is I am the catalyst for that because in 2016, fast forward four years later, I was uh, finishing working on the Christian Bugs campaign where I met Christian Bugs. I met Tequila Johnson, two of the co-founders. And um, after Trump got elected in the fall of 2016, I called these women together and said, look, we got to do something. Right. I felt so compelled to act. I looked around. I'm like, there are no Dr. King's and Malcolm X is coming to save us. It's right. on us. Right. It is on us. And when I look around, who is actually doing the work? Right. It's the Equity Alliance. And so the catalyst to that starting is me calling the six black women together to do that. And uh, I thank them for trusting my leadership. We, what I say is we like to address systems, not symptoms. Okay. Um, a lot of what you think of a nonprofit does um, is, you know, the work of charity. 
We are about the work of justice. Right. How do we get to the root causes? And when you drill that down of what at the root is, it's the policy violence that happens when lawmakers who don't understand our plight, who don't understand, who don't look like us, mm -hmm. are making policies on our behalf. But if they're not doing that, then how do we remove them? So I got a quick question. What does justice mean to you? That's a loaded question. <laughs> but I want I just if you if you can't like what does cuz I think a lot of times we hear that word justice like we want justice, right? But that can mean something different from everybody. And mm. so I'm curious um what does justice mean to to you? Ooh, that's a loaded question. Mm -hmm. Um you know, we, we, we throw these buzzwords around, around equity and justice right. and, and, you know, all of that. It's about fairness for me. It's about self-determination, having mm. the freedom to, to choose, the freedom to be free, the, the freedom to be, to define my own destiny mm. um, without the, the barriers that our society puts on black people. Um, and so it's about wanting what everyone else has, right. not taking the rights away from someone else, but having the same rights and privileges and liberties that um, the privileged few have in our society. We want accountability. Mm -hmm. um, it's about leaving me alone, okay? <laughs> it's about get your foot off my neck. Right. <laughs> get your hand out of my uterus. Right. It's about letting me have the choice to make my own decisions. And um, I see a government who does not want to have see, have us have choice. Right. It, it's about the community control that they have, they being white supremacy, mm -hmm. has exerted on our communities for over 400 years. Right. Chattel slavery never went away. No. It just reincarnated itself. Right. And so what we are fighting today is the reincarnation of, of slavery mm -hmm. in different many forms. Mm -hmm. And so the justice work is about dismantling those systems to, and removing barriers so that black people truly can be free. Right. And so, Not just black people, but all people. people. Right. right. And so, child slavery hasn't went away. Um, a lot of these things uh, inequities, unfairness—they just look. They just look different, right? They, mm -hmm. On the surface, it's not as dramatized as it was, mm -hmm. you know, fifty years ago. Right? They're um, not hanging yeah, us from right, trees anymore. Right? right exactly. Right. Um, and so, if if their tactics have changed, our taxes must change too, right? Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. tactically. Um, what have been some of the ways you, the Equity Alliance, just the work you've done has responded to those mm. change of tactics um, that has occurred over time that has still kept people oppressed, um, traumatized, poor, um, this, this in crises, right? right. Uh, every single day. Yeah. Ooh. You spoke to you spoke a word there in terms of our our tactics have to change, mm -hmm. right? We have to to pivot, and I believe the reason the the reasons that the Equity Alliance has been so successful is our ability to take a step back. One, not ask permission, but also 
our look at the ways of how we reimagine how we engage people, um, being authentic, being bold, being unapologetic. Mm-hmm. Those have served us well. Um, people are looking for authenticity. They're looking for real connection. And so one of the things we like to say is we, we, we build power year round. So we're challenging the way that we've always done it. Because if we think about white supremacy, it's to uphold certain rules. And if those rules and customs in our society are doing things the way we've always done it and, and being beholden and subscribing to these unspoken rules, then we got to get outside that system and do things differently. And so that's, that's why we say we, work, we operate at the intersection of black culture in mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. So we put the medicine in the milk. Right. Um, we're, we're not expecting you to come to us. We're going to go to you. We're going meet, to meet you where you are, whether that's at a, a, a brunch happy hour right. or at a nightclub or if you at church. Right. We are coming to you. And so we organize in a way that speaks to your authentic self. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to show people that you can wear gold locks and be a state senator. Right. Um, you can love who you love mm-hmm. and run for office. So in order to do, if we're going to challenge politics as usual, then we can't do things the way we've always done it, which is um, come into black communities two to three weeks before election time. Mm-hmm. Say, um, we want your vote. And so up until now, the getting the black vote has always been transactional, but not transformative. And so in order to be transformative, we have to have real authentic connection mm-hmm. in a real way. Mm-hmm. And so that looks like having a Juneteenth block party right. on Buchanan Street and paying yeah. homage to the ancestors. Right. That looks like hosting Black X steeplechase and saying, no, black people ori- originated horse racing. Right. And we're going to take up space. in a space that has traditionally been white. And we can show up as our authentic selves, right? Right. Um, It looks like, you know, going to public housing projects and saying your vote matters too Mm and talking to them. Getting outside of the norm of what we think politics is about. Mm -hmm. And so we are all about bringing more people into the process. Right. No matter what you look like, who you love, who you pray to, your vote matters too. If there are, for example, 10 houses on the street, conventional wisdom says we only have to talk to the three houses on the street that are super voters who vote in every election. Their, their vote is the only one that matters and gets mm-hmm. talked to. It, it repeats this perpetual cycle. Mm-hmm. The person who votes, th- their needs get met, mm-hmm. and then the candidate only listens to them when they're in office, right. and only certain neighborhoods get investment. We're trying to break that perpetual cycle by saying we want to talk to the other seven houses on the street. Right. So that's kind of a little bit about how we how we do it. Um, We have our power pillars that we um, build power is through community organizing, meeting people where they are, bringing into uh, civic leadership through our Liberty Collective program, voter mobilization, um, you know, have collective impact through coalition. Mm -hmm. So we don't just do this work by ourselves, but in coalition with folks across the state and uh, advocacy wins. We mm-hmm. we don't do we can't have change if not if we're not changing the policy. Right, exactly. So. Which is which is 
which is the work. Yeah, <laughs> but the, the problem is, is is the work. Once once the protests and all the marching is done and stuff, people mm-hmm. have to figure out how to change these policies and mm-hmm. talk to these uh, state legislators. So, which makes me want to makes me pivot. Um. Um, potentially as the, the new senator, Tennessee State Senator of District 19, um, it's a little different role, right? Um, mm-hmm. than, than community organizing. And you do way more than just community organizing, but we're just going to use that term okay. for, for uh, simplicity purposes. How do you pivot and balance, or how do you see those roles being Similar, a little different. How do you respond to that change? Um, because it is different. Um, it's a different interaction with community a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're going to have to persuade other senators mm-hmm. of things that you feel is necessary for community. And I know your constituent which was be specifically District 19. Yeah. Um, but you still have to be in conversation or debate mm-hmm. <laughs> with other senators. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? How do you plan to tackle those things and that potential, you know, change of of working with community looks like? Yeah. Whew. So much about my race is about challenging narrative, challenging conventional thinking and wisdom in these boxes that we put ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that we tend to say is, well, or what I've heard is, well, activists, it's hard for an activist to transition to an elected official. Is it? Because from where I sit, um, I talk to people every day. Mm-hmm. As a state senator, I'm supposed to engage my constituents every single day. Mm. And so I have been in boots on the ground, in the community, building relationship with people in an authentic way, Having giving access to people, right, mm-hmm. um, who feel like I'm approachable. Right. And so, one, I do believe that that's an easy transition, actually, um, because I have been building coalition with people across the state. And so my network of, um, of folks goes deep and wide. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that I think I bring to the table as a state senator is being not only accessible, but working in coordination in coalition with other people. We tend to think that as a state center, what are you gonna get done? Right. Well, there are, there are 33 other people in my body, right. but also we can work from the outside too. Right. Um, it's not just me, but how can I leverage my power and connections and coalition across the state? I've been building power with, with groups like Turk, Tennessee Immigrant Refugee Rights Coalition, who's talking to new immigrant voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks in Memphis, like Memphis for All and Up the Vote 901, who can talk to people in Memphis to have them call their Memphis legislators, mm-hmm. right? Um, people in Chattanooga, Unified, mm-hmm. all of these groups that are working together mm-hmm. on the outside that I bring to bring with me to the mm-hmm. state senate. Um, and so those are the things that I think that will serve me well as a state senator okay. um, in getting things done. But also, you know, not afraid to challenge the racist policies that are being passed. Not only racist, but bigoted um, policies that are harmful to my community. Mm-hmm. I see my role as, one, number one, doing no harm. 
Right. Um, and so I won't sign off or I will oppose legislation that um, will cause harm to my community. We can file amendments um, to make sure that um, we can, you know, have policies not be as harmful. Um, working across the aisle, you know, that's something, too, that is a double-edged sword in this state. We are in a Republican state legislature. Right. And, you know. Super majority. Super majority. Right. And I don't want to be naive. I don't want people to be naive about this thing. I don't want people to say, well, how are you going to get things done as a state legislature? We are outnumbered, right? As a Democratic Party, we are outnumbered. That is a fact. Right. Um. It has been a fact for um, over, you know, about 10 years right, now. Right, almost 10 years. And bipartisanship can happen at the state legislature level, um, but it's one-sided, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Democrats have been making compromises, but I don't think our Republican Party has been making compromises back to work with us. There's been bills that have been passed that make sense for us mm-hmm. um, to pass Medicaid, to have fully funded schools, to have common sense gun legislation, but those things don't get passed. Um, and so our Democratic lawmakers have to make concessions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the bipartisanship has been extended to the Republican Party to pass bills. But I don't think that love has been extended back. And so I want us to be really real about that and that ability to get um, laws passed. But there are some common sense Republicans that we can't work work with Mm -hmm. to have common sense legislation around issues that we both agree on around uh, criminal justice reform, voting rights restoration, which mm-hmm. is laws, a law that I want to continue to pass, that I've worked on. Um, public education funding, we all care about public education. Mm-hmm. That's something we can work on as well. So there are things that make sense. Right. Um, relative caregiver assistance. I want to have a plan for aging seniors to not only stay in their home, um, but also have assistance for people who are caring for them. Mm-hmm. Relative caregiver assistance was passed by, a rep- or not passed, but re- proposed by a Republican legislator just last year. I want to work on that legislation to make sure it gets passed. So there is common ground. Mm-hmm. We just got to find it and um, be willing to work with those legislators that actually uh, are willing to work with us. Um, what do you foresee um, some of your, I guess, challenges <clears throat> may be? Um, because state of Tennessee is in its four-year, four-year terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, it's not short, but it's not long. Right. And so, you know, you kind of got to get in there, do your work, and then you kind of back trying to, you know, get reelected again. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you see could possibly be your, your biggest challenges um, if elected? Um, hmm. If you have none, just go ahead and say it. <laughs> if no, you... <laughs> I, no, I just, I think the challenge will be, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Right. And so it's very different, you know, being there as a, as an advocate, being at the state level, sitting in committee hearings, even testifying, um, you know, but once I get in there, right. Right. I don't know what the challenges may be in terms of, um, <clears throat> How do I make deals? How do I negotiate? Making right. sure I'm um, not compromising my values mm-hmm. and things like that. So the balance of holding the line, right. standing on what I believe is right, mm-hmm. but also and being vocal about the wrongness, the injustice, the inequities that exist, right. and speaking right. truth to power. Right. Balancing the ability to also get legislation passed right. is probably the biggest challenge. Right. Um, 
that I see. Um, and I always like to ask um, my 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 black candidate guests, and also managing question. expectations. I, okay, I would yeah. say managing expectations as okay. well. We got to think a little bit more broadly about what success looks like All as right. a as a legislator. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just about what gets passed, right? Mm-hmm. Legislation, but Perhaps that's me passing an idea on to my colleague Mm -hmm. who may have a better chance of getting something passed. Mm. So being able to put ego aside, right? right? It doesn't have to be my name on a bill, but as long as the work gets done and the impact is made, I think that um, speaks volumes. But also, how do we strengthen coalition across our caucus and work together as a caucus and and speak with a unified voice? I think that's success. How do we amplify the issues that are happening at the state level? Because a lot of what's happening at the state level um, gets buried in committee. they, they're not transparent about what ha- what's happening. They, they like to wait until the last minute to pass caption bills, mm-hmm. to sneak little amendments in there that mm-hmm. the public never gets to see or know about. Right. And so I see progress as amplifying issues and making sure that I'm being in constant communication with constituents and putting public pressure right. on our legislatures to hold votes, right. um, put them on record for their vote, and right. having to... Uh, make them make a choice right. <laughs> about what's right and what's wrong. And so I'm glad you I'm glad you said um, what success looks like and being realistic with that and being transparent because um, I always like to ask specifically my um, my black guests that are running for uh, office um, what role do they blackness play because in our community we hold our black elected officials on a pedestal. And we have these set expectations, whether we fully understand what their role is or isn't, mm-hmm. we have certain expectations from whatever perspective or view that we understand politics. Um, how do you plan to, you know, be that transparent with community and specifically mm-hmm. District 19, mm-hmm. um, but to make sure people have a an opportunity to understand your role, your key goals, what success looks like, and understand your power, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think many of us doesn't don't understand the power that our elected officials have or don't have, and that's why we could feel let down or not satisfied with uh, the production or results that they they mm-hmm. they yield or don't yield. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like in the in the black community at large, someone said this recently, a black pastor recently at a town hall, that we tend to hold our elected officials like celebrities. We mm-hmm. tend to treat them like uh, on this celebrity status, this pedestal, and we're just public servants, right? And that comes with the level of expectation, but also some false expectation um, in terms of our influence and ability to get things done. So a lot of what I see as my role is going to be to educate. Okay. Um, What I see happening, what I see as a community organizer through the Equity Alliance, voter education is so critical Mm -hmm. in this moment in the age of where we have misinformation floating online Mm -hmm. 
we have the demonizing and of traditional media, mm -hmm. the what we call the fourth institution of government. Our media is being demonized and called the enemy of the state. Mm -hmm. um, newspapers are closing. Uh, and so social media is exploding. And so there's a lot coming at us. Right. Um, and also we don't have civics in school. So right. a lot of what I see is about educating the public on actually how government works, um, actually what the powers of the state level have, how that's different from the federal government, how that's different from the local government, and how they work together. Um, and so a lot of that is educating people so that we can manage those expectations on what I actually can do, what I actually have power to do. Um, so that's what I see my role as, and I enjoy that piece. Um, and that's what I don't see happening with our current um, elected slate of public officers is how do we do that in a way that's authentic, that is constant, consistent, right. and breaks things down in a way that people can understand it and it's not intimidating. Because right. if we put people on this celebrity status so it makes it seem like as elected official you can't approach me. Right. That's why through the Equity Alliance we do Days on the Hill. We bring people to the Capitol to show them right. you these people work for you. Right. I work for you, and you have just as much agency to come to me, set up a meeting, um, and to understand what's happening. So that's the way that I see that I can be a, an effective legislator is to just educate the public. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I want to do is have sort of a, and I haven't come up with the word with this, but so, sort of a, an advisory board council. Mm -hmm that is everyday people in my district constituents that I want to make sure that I'm keeping my ear to the streets, right. boots on the ground. I, I still want to know what's going on. I want to stay these, tapped in. Yeah, I want to stay tapped in, right? Mm -hmm. And so these people are going to be neighborhood association leaders. They're going to be just everyday people who um, know what's going on in the community, who can inform me, right. but also I can use to help inform the community. Right. And so that's one of the things I want to do as, to, as a state senator. I don't think currently District 19 has a newsletter. Okay. <laughs> um, I have a communications and PR background. I was the director of communications for the chamber. I served in a marketing role at Meharry. I was a communication strategist for Congressman Jim Cooper, and I did all our PR and communications for the Equity Alliance for the first four years of our existence. So I have a, a way of effectively communicating, mm -hmm. and newsletters is a way that I want to do that, making sure I am coming to do um, sort of uh, public tours right. across my district right. to communicate to different constituency groups. Right. So you, I'm going to be a constant presence. Coming on the platforms like this. Okay, coming back. right, coming back. <laughs> I want to, you just, right. you're not going to just see me and hear from me during election time. Right. You're going to hear from me constantly throughout the year. Right. And so um, I know we got to wrap it up soon, but I got three more questions I got to ask you. I okay, to. and I'll try to. So. Not we talked right. about power, right? Because mm -hmm. power is a big word that we like to use, building power, community power, especially especially in grassroots community organizing, right? Um, and I'm always interested, you know, what does power mean or what is power to, to others? And so um, you will have a lot of power, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so what does power mean to you? Um, another loaded question. Jeez. This deep this conversation. I got to keep it deep. Ooh, and so deep. what what so what does what does power mean to you and and even further like 
what are some ways you plan and want to use uh, the potentially newfound power that you will have to 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 combat white supremacy and, and um, discriminatory policies and laws, historical, you know, <laughs> um, racism in these policies and laws, mm-hmm. um, and continue to build um, power um, in community throughout uh, District 19, but also throughout Tennessee. Mm-hmm. That's question one. One, you know, there's the individual power. Right. And I want to make sure that I am empowering and giving people self-agency. Okay. Um, you know, I've lived my life and have been uh, in situations where people took my power and mm. I felt silenced. And I have built the Equity Alliance so that I can give people a voice. I like to say that, you know, I'm not giving voice to the voiceless because everyone has a voice. They're just unheard. Mm. Um, and so I see my my platform as a state senator, senator is to, one, carry the voices of people in our everyday community of what's happening. Um, and I can educate people and my colleagues on how these bills will impact them. Um, and so I want to give people self-agency to know that I truly am working for them and they truly have power to affect change on the state level um, by coming to committee hearings, inviting people to the Capitol, making sure I'm at, telling them to call in mm-hmm. to their legislator and um, either oppose or not oppose a bill that I'm sponsoring or I need to get killed, right? right? Again, using the public is a way that we can use our collective power. Right. Um, and so also information and knowledge is power. Again, I see my role as educating people in, uh, in a greater way, but also I see power in a sense of the things that I've been trying to do on the outside, I see now in a way that I can use it in a greater um, capacity to try to get done on the inside. Um, there's the hard side, what we like to say, the elected official side, the candidate side, but then there's the soft side, the organizing side, the grassroots side. Mm-hmm. And these two, these two uh, entities in politics don't necessarily always talk to each other. Right. I see myself as a bridge builder and mm. in, in that way. Right. Um, I've been working to build coalition with people on the outside to break up the supermajority. Mm. And this is also a strategic move right. in a way of going after power. A lot right. of times we we feel like it's it's a it's something that we're not allowed to have. Right. Uh, again, because Politics teaches us that we're we're not woke enough, we're not smart enough, so therefore we're not worthy enough to go after it. But I am the example that I'm trying to show people that you can have self-agency mm-hmm. to go after the power that we need to make change in our communities. So I hope I answered that question. Yeah. That's what power means to me is individually having self-agency to not ask for permission, mm. but see the urgency of now right. that we're in to say it doesn't matter what it looks like. It's about how do we go get it? Right. Um, and then the collective power to say it's not going to just be me doing it, but it's right. how do we work together across cultural mm-hmm. coalition to take our state back? My second to last question, you kind of you kind of brought up the, the word urgency. There's a reproductive justice urgency um, well, crisis, I would say. Um, housing crisis, educational crisis, 
um, anti-blackness crisis, mm-hmm. um, uh, mass shooting crisis, uh, poverty crisis, so many crises. And, and, and I hear people use that word urgency. We have to be urgent, mm. right? Um, mm. I don't know. Everybody's urgent must be a little different because, <laughs> you know, when people are dying, right, literally, people are dying, you would think urgency would look a little different at this okay. particular time in 2022. Right. So what does urgency look like to you? I'm glad you asked me that because I want to address uh, another a factor in this race, right. and that is um, my youth, right? And there is a narrative that says, oh, you need to wait your turn. Mm. And what I say to that is Dr. King talked about the urgency of now right? when he spoke um, at the on Washington. Back then, we were dealing with Emmett Till being murdered and tortured. Back then, we were dealing with sanitation workers not being paid a livable wage. We're still dealing with the same issues 55 years later. And so when people tell tell my generation, Mm -hmm. wait your turn, it's not your time yet, I say to that, we have watched people get killed by police, Mm -hmm. slaughtered with Mm AR-15s. We have watched kids die in schools. We have multitudes of crises, people sleeping on the streets, Mm -hmm. people getting pushed out of Nashville and displaced. And if your answer is to say, wait your turn, you are upholding white supremacy Mm. because waiting your turn has only served white supremacy. We don't have time to wait. My generation has watched planes being used as bombs Mm -hmm. flown into buildings Mm -hmm. okay (laughs) we saw a black president tell us we don't have there there is no time okay obama told us we are the ones we've been waiting for so this urgency of now is now right yesterday yesterday Mm -hmm. we're still fighting the same fights to carry on the legacy of dr king the poor people's campaign Mm -hmm. to everyday workers when you look around nashville who are your servers who are your bus drivers who are your paraprofessionals your teachers who is serving in making nashville run Mm -hmm. they look like me and you right it's it's and so we're creating an underclass of people a permanent underclass because we won't pass livable wages. We won't give teachers pay raises. We are, we are raising rents, price gouging people out of their homes mm-hmm. that they have owned for generations. Mm-hmm. And when I look at the people in this race, this stuff happened on your watch. Mm-hmm. And so you can't tell me to wait my turn mm-hmm. when gentrification happened on your watch. Mm-hmm. Voter turnout being 50th, 50th voter turnout happens on your watch. All right. Okay? We're losing rights. That happened on your watch. And so the urgency for me to get in this race is now. Mm-hmm. I, the, the door opened for me to get in this race, and I'm going to take it. Got to walk I'm through gonna, them doors. You got to take that down. opportunity. Sometimes you got to knock the doors and down. And I'm going to fight mm-hmm. like hell for this opportunity. My last question to you um, is... 
just giving you the last word. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to go in a little more, want to extrapolate on for the viewers and the listeners um, before we end this conversation? Hmm. We're editing this, right? Because I'm still thinking right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are some things I want to touch on in the state senate race. You know, I talked about the urgency of now and the youth thing. Um, there's also a narrative that I want to dispel about never holding public elected office, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, again, we are challenging narrative. My race is about pushing back against and showing people what's possible mm -hmm. when we actually reimagine what we are supposed to have for our communities. And I am carving out another pathway to power. You know, again, conventional wisdom will say, well, what, what makes you qualified to, to, to serve in the state senate? You've never held elected office. And what I say to that is public service don't mean you have to be elected. Mm. I have been a public servant for over 20 years. Mm. And the last time I checked, the qualifications for running for this seat didn't say you had to hold a current or be a public elected official. Right. Uh, again, the public elected officials in this race, the things that have happened in our community happened on their watch. Mm. Um, and so I am offering something different. Right. I am um, carving a pathway out for people to, a pathway that says, you know, you don't have to have a famous last name right. to run for office. You, I can't write a big check to my campaign because I don't have, uh, I wasn't, I don't come from wealth, right? right. Um, my parents weren't big civil rights leaders. I wasn't groomed for politics, mm -hmm. okay? All of these things is what politics says you're supposed to do in order mm -hmm. to be in office. But I say, like, I, I am challenging all those narratives to show people it's our time. That's what's possible. When you are doing the work, when you have the heart to serve like I do, I have a track record of experience, and we discount lived experience as experience. Mm -hmm. right. Again, I've lived the issues. Um, I also have the work experience. I have served at the state level. Um, I have served at the federal level. I have served at the local level, even being appointed by Mayor Cooper on his task force during the pandemic to um, allocate resources to combat the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I was responsible for $28 million mm -hmm. getting allocated from the Metro Council for money to, to go directly into black and brown Nashvilleans' hands mm -hmm. for rent relief, for food insecurity, for small businesses. So I have worked in governing roles, right? That should not get discounted. That counts for something um, that uh, I bring to this race that I bring to this seat. How can people support your campaign? Um, where can they go? What can they do? How can mm -hmm. they do it? Yeah. Um, to win this race, it's going to take all of us, literally. Um, it's going to take one extra step um, to do something you've never done before, um, to say, I will step up. And so you can follow me. You can go to my website, OliverForTNSenate.com. 
click the get involved button, sign up to volunteer. I need volunteers. Sign up to help make phone calls, help to call voters, help to knock doors of voters. I need folks putting out yard signs. There is no task too small that helps this campaign, that fuels this campaign for the next six weeks. Um, you can donate to my campaign if you don't have the time. Money helps go a long way. Okay, <laughs> It helps me pay for volunteers. It helps me pay for canvassers. It helps me get my name out there mm -hmm. um, in spaces that I can't be in. Uh, it helps me to pay my team. Mm -hmm. And so money is is the liquid gold okay. of campaigns. I can't do this without that. So you can donate on my website. Um, and so I, you can tell other people about me. Right. Maybe you have a large platform. Invite right. me to come speak to your group. If mm -hmm. you have a neighborhood association, all of these things, I'm willing to come. Again, I want to be accessible. So there are so many ways. I actually posted on my Instagram 10 ways that you can support me. And so I check, encourage your viewers to check that out. So go follow me on all the platforms and um, go to my website, oliverfortnsenate.com. And uh, most importantly, so people who, who may not know, primary election is August 4th. Um, and then the general election is on November 8th. Um, mm -hmm. Do we have early voting on this, too? Yes, when early is voting is uh, starts July 15th. Okay, a couple so, weeks. Yes, we yeah. are less than yeah. uh, a month away from yeah. early voting, so July 15th through the 30th. Okay. You know, all of our districts have changed in Nashville, so mm -hmm. I encourage you to look up your voter registration status. Make sure you are registered to vote at the address that you live at. you got to do that before July 5th. Make sure that you know that you can vote in District 19. Mm -hmm. You can look that up on the Secretary of State's website. Um, and make sure that you have a plan to vote. Know that you can vote um, during early voting. Don't wait until Election Day. Mm -hmm. We never know what happens on Election Day. Uh, we had a tornado that happened tw two years ago right. on Super Tuesday. Right. People couldn't vote. So don't wait. Um, get that on out the way. Well, Charlene, I really appreciate your time, uh, your transparency, your genuineness, and just your availability uh, to be here on Deep Dish Conversation. So I hope, uh, I know people gonna gonna going love this interview um, and just, you know, love your energy, your personality. And um, we'll see, you know, um, on August 4th, and then we'll see you again, you know, November 8th, you okay. know. Um, so thank you. Thank you. And I just ask for people's vote. Thank you.